Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Writer's Buzz is a series of free events that bring together Colorado's writers, readers, and artistic community. Hosted in Lighthouse's Grotto, the format is ever-changing but always fun, encompassing readings, talks, special seminars, and collaborations across disciplines. At the April 2013 Writer's Buzz Poetry Masterclass Reading, five poets took to the grotto stage and performed a poetry roundabout led by their instructor, Chris Rancic. The readers were David J. Daniels, Andrea Doré, J. Diego Fry, Roxanne Banks-Malia, and Kathleen Willard. Welcome, everybody. Happy freaking National Poetry Month. Nice, huh? Yes. About time. There you go. It's about time, right. As um, Therese said earlier, I'm so excited that tonight is all about poetry. All the time. Yes. Are there any fiction writers out there? Don't worry. Tarring and feathering only hurts a little bit. It's going to be just fine. It'll be okay. Um, Welcome. Thank you for coming. My name is Mike Henry. I'm the um, executive director here at Lighthouse. Um, It's my distinct pleasure to welcome you here um, and to um, get you warmed up for this excellent... um, gang of poets behind me. It's a little weird. <laughs> there, are they making, if they make faces, that's fine. That's okay. Um, so, uh, poetry. Hmm. Um, it's a big topic, right? And everybody's always wondering about poetry. You know, can poetry matter? Should poetry matter? Poetry makes nothing happen. Poetry, and this is my favorite, I think, it's a momentary stay against confusion. I like those momentary stays. They don't happen enough for me. Um, And I think the other statement that you hear a lot is, poetry can save your life. And, well, at the very least, it can save you from a boring Saturday evening, right? That's why you're all here. So, obviously, poetry has power, and we all believe in that power. And I think, you know, when you hear that term, can poetry save your life, it's sort of the expectation that it's going to. And I think that's, that's sort of a wrong way of looking at it. Um, it doesn't have to save your life. It's not waiting for you. It's not like the sort of... I don't know, ethereal ambulance of the soul. I like that. That's good. I'm going to keep that one. Thank you. All right. We bookmarked that on the podcast. That was, that's, that's the best thing I've said in a long time. Oh, I, all right. Yeah, I forgot what I said anyway. So um, I'll have to check that. Yes, thank you. Um, it can save your life. You have to embrace it. You have to let it do that, I think. I really do believe it can do that. It, I believe it, it did that for me. Um, and you have to want it to, to do that. You have to want it to move you. Um, you have to need it to be something in your life. Um, I think many great poems are about that searching, um, that act of slowing our lives down and seeing experience and the passage of time and everyday objects um, and seeing the truth in them because we need to see the truth in them. And often, sometimes it's a truth we already know, um, but we need to be reminded of it over and over and over and again. And I think all great literature does that. Of course, I really especially think that poetry does that. Um, and in a way, poetry is an act of witnessing. And I think um, that leads me to, to want to read to you a little bit of Mark Doty, uh, because he, he talks about this stuff very, very beautifully. 
So um, he, he wrote this, this um, kind of a, a long medita- meditative essay, um, ostensibly about still life paintings, um, but it's also about the artistic impulse. And I'm just going to read a couple of passages, and then, I'm gonna, then I will turn it over to our MC for tonight. He's looking at a painting right now. So we're accustomed to not seeing what is so near to us. We do not need to look at things that are at hand because they are at hand every day. That is what makes home so safe and so appealing that we do not need to look at it. Novelty recedes in the face of the daily, and we're free to relax, to drift, to focus inward. But in still life, the familiar is limbed with an almost hallucinatory clarity, nothing glanced over or elided, nothing subordinate to the impression of the whole. That is why, I think, having imbibed such a deep draft of these paintings, I turned toward my lover's body, which suddenly seemed to me such a tangible, intrinsically interesting fact. That's what we are, facts, like the painter's fruits and shells, physical presences. Here was a shoulder against which I could lean my shoulder, jacket to jacket, as the canal boat chuffed forward, our commingled breath fogging the glass, on the other side of which ran droplets of rain. This is what history is, all those centuries of bodies moving over these canals, twisting and blooming into life in these houses, these streets, all that flesh hungering, coming together, separating, continuing, accumulating, relinquishing, aging, and breaking down. Bodies as tulips bent to the demands of light, colored into blossom, spent, as if the world were a corridor through which the body moved. What makes a poem a poem, finally, is that it is unparaphrasable, There is no other way to say exactly this. It exists only in its own body of language, only in these words. I may try to explain it or represent it in other terms, but then some element of its life will always be missing. It's the same with painting. All I can say of still life must finally fall short. I may inventory, weigh, suggest, but I cannot circumscribe. Some element of mystery will always be left out. What is missing is, precisely, its poetry. Part of what poetry is, I think, is the inner life of the dead held in suspension. It is still visible to us. You can look at these paintings and you can feel it. This is evidence that a long act of seeing might translate into something permanent. Both of ourselves and curiously impersonal, sturdy, useful. Of what use, exactly? As advocates of intimacy, as embodiments of paradox, as witnesses to earth, here, this moment, now. Evidence, thus, that tenderness and style are still the best gestures we can make in the face of death. Thanks. (laughs) That's what we're all here for, right? Not to get maudlin or anything, but... I think that's important. So it's my distinct honor to introduce our uh, illustrious MC, our master class instructor, our master class in so master class instructor for so many things other than poetry. Um, Chris Rancic is a former Denver poet laureate. Um, he's one of my favorite poetry instructors of all time. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's really true. 
Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to call him a good friend. He is the author of several books of poetry, um, one that's coming out soon, June, June. Language for the Living and the Dead. Uh, and his other collections are Asleep Beneath the Hill of Dreams, Lost Songs, and Last Chances, and Never Summer, which was the Colorado Book Award winner. Um, please welcome Chris Rancic. Well, this is going to be fun. Um, the people sitting behind me, everything you need to know about them, uh, you can tell from their footwear. <laughs> That was just to make them self-conscious. It's it's a pleasure and a little bit of a a kind of hangover, in a way, to be here tonight because uh, it's uh, one of the great privileges in my life to teach a master class or to facilitate it because, in many ways, it teaches itself. Uh, It's so rare to have people so capable and skilled and motivated come into your presence and... Uh, and then they just kind of cut loose and, and, and go for it. And it was a wonderful experience this past year to work with these people. I came to uh, admire their writing and also really appreciated them as individuals because they were so supportive of one another. And that isn't always the case, but it was this time uh, that they all took great interest, even passionate interest, in one another's manuscripts so that the sessions were uh, – you know, wonderful and almost exhausting uh, when we finished. It might have been the wine. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but what you're, you're, you're about to hear uh, five wonderful master poets uh, read here tonight. And the way we're going to do this is a little different. We're going to do a round robin. Uh, I'm going to introduce each person on the first poem that they read. Uh, and then they're going to read a poem and, and give way to the next. And in this way, uh, they'll build on what the last person has presented. And also, they're going to, uh, uh, I think you'll be thrilled with the movement in this kind of a reading. So it should be uh, wonderful. Without further ado, I'm going to read you their introductions. These, as I was reading through them, uh, uh, well, anyway, I'll just read them to you. This is, I'd ask them to tell me something about themselves and their publishing history and to say something funny about themselves. Uh, and the only one who didn't really say something funny about himself is J.D., but you're going to get that. <laughs> so. And in fact, I'm just going to go down the row. Uh, so we'll start out with uh, J. Diego Fry. Uh, uh, J.D., as he's known to me anyway, was born and raised in the southeastern corner of 1970s Denver, Colorado. That says a lot. Uh, three important landmarks from his childhood were Winchell's Donuts, Kmart, and the Rainbow Music Hall. This, plus a lifelong obsession with convenient cheeseburgers, informs a great deal of his writing. (laughs) Yes, he was funny, huh? Uh, J.D. has published one collection of poetry, Umbrellas Are Else, which is a wonderful collection of poetry, uh, which was warmly received by a small group of T-shirt-wearing fanatics. (laughs) I have a pair of boxer shorts. (laughs) Uh, he hopes to publish his next collection, which is one that we worked on in this group, The Year the Eggs Cracked, to a similarly rabid fan base soon. <laughs> J. Diego Fry. Thanks very much. Thanks, everybody, for coming out tonight. Um, I'm going to read you the first poem in the new collection, which is called... The year the eggs cracked. Um, as yet unpublished. Still on fool's cap. 
This poem is titled, The Reason That Can Be Reasoned Is Not the Eternal Reason. The Name That Can Be Named Is Not the Eternal Name. That was just the title. (laughs) The weasel that can be weaseled is not the eternal weasel. Likewise, the cheeseburger that can be cheeseburged is not the eternal cheeseburger. Thus, and here it is, you can get what you want, but it's silly. You'll never really have gotten it, not really. The nose that can be nosed is not the eternal nose, and the eternal ass cannot be assessed. A poker game that can be gamed will not poke eternal. And the eternal chicken will not be chicked by someone named the colonel. Thanks very much. It's only the beginning. Next up, I'd like to introduce uh, Andrea DeRay, uh, who's a multi-genre writer who has published fiction, poetry, and essays in everything from literary magazines to business journals. She won her first poetry award a couple of years ago when she was training with the Peace Corps in Turkmenistan, and so came right home to collect her $25 check (laughs) and begin a serious work on her manuscript for the Poetry Masterclass. Uh, As soon as she can think of the title for it, she'll begin seeking a publisher. Do you have a working title yet? She's still working on it. Okay. Uh, Her poetry has appeared most recently in Don't Just Sit There and in Dovetails, an international journal of the arts, just published by Writing for Peace. In the meantime, Andrea writes a weekly opinion column for suburban Denver newspapers and enjoys freelancing for organizations such as USA Cycling, where she recently rode the velodrome in Colorado Springs as research for her article on track racing. She found out that much like... Uh, much of her life, track bicycles have no brakes. Andrea Duray. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Mm-hmm. There we go. I think you're going to find this evening to be a dance, a really wonderful dance. And so I would like to share with you a poem called Last Waltz in Summit County. And I think that any of us who have driven west in the last two or three years will understand what this feeling is. Last Waltz in Summit County. Ladies stand in rusted dresses, lofty, Severe, rigid, mute. Watching neighbors sway. A graceful nod, an unwavering curtsy, a great, deep, bending dip. Silver on green confetti winks. Branches feathered in shadow lean near to whisper their regrets to these ravaged ladies these ravaged ladies of the dance who, in their red deaths, no longer know the steps. Thank you. you. 
Yeah, feel free to join us in the you know the beatnik <laughs> thing. So. Uh, next up, uh, we have uh, Roxanne Banks Malia. And I'm, before I read her introduction, I'm just going to tell you that during the time we did the master class, she was carrying her daughter. And so I really thought that we had six people in the class. Not <laughs> and we did. This kid's got, you know, got, as soon as she's verbal, there's going to be poetry everywhere, I'm sure. So. Uh, Roxanne was born in Denver, and she holds an MA in, uh, from the University of Colorado and an MFA from Leslie University's Low Residency Program. Her poems have appeared in Copper Nickel and Connotations, an online artifact, and her freelance work has appeared in the Your Hub section of the Denver Post and Rocky Mountain News. She teaches at Arapahoe Community College in Littleton, and her critical prose has also appeared in Cold Front Magazine, an online publication that provides coverage of contemporary poetry and lyricism for poets, musicians, publishing houses, and the reading and listening public. In the fifth grade, sometime in the mid-80s, she says, uh, she won second place in the Friends of the Bemis Library Poetry Contest. (laughs) She's encouraged by her husband, who reminds her that second place isn't technically winning. (laughs) (laughs) Roxanne Banks Malia. Hi. Well, I have one funny poem, and it is um, kind of... I hate this metaphor, but it piggybacks on um, that comment that my husband made. <laughs> so I will, um, I will read that one because it's dedicated to him. Although I think he thinks a lot of these poems are about him. <laughs> so he says, is that one about me? Writing about me again? Okay. Uh, what my poem would tell you if you ever read it. Is the title. <laughs> Don't worry, you won't be laughing at the rest of them, so go ahead. <laughs> I love you the way a cat rabbit punches a catnip toy locked in embrace under the table, for under our table is a den, dark and sturdy as a blanket fort, the catnip sticky and fresh, and claws are freed their curve, if only ephemerally, info fur. For us, I would give my spleen in all its stoic eggplantness. Though you don't like nightshades, sorry. <laughs> I seek you as a moth flies to flame. I am more certain than the train that howls each night at our window, knocks blinds, rattles locks, so lusty, so cantankerous, so that moth in the zapper last summer in Lyman or West Kansas. I call you Butterball when I know you deserve Dean or Rex (laughs) or Old Blue. (laughs) But your feet are Thanksgiving and gamey as ganders. I'd crawl on the roof to watch you come in, steady and steely as an August tornado. Baby, hush. No snoring. Thanks. You were Roosevelt to my Churchill, my Marshall plan, when you stood up to Omar, the Mexican timeshare salesman, (laughs) who said, you don't deserve vacation. (laughs) Our honeymoon. I'll never be your pizza burning, my worms that surface sidewalks post-rain, your spiders that haunt, crawl through tub drain. I'd teach you poetry in prison. 
It is so fun to hear these poems again. Uh, it reminds me of summer, uh, which is coming. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's coming. Uh, our next poet, uh, Kathleen Willard, uh, had the longest commute, I might add. Uh, she had to come down into the classes. And uh, she has published poems in Bombay Gin, Matter, Opinion, Poetry Review, and elsewhere, and has been anthologized in Landscape and Place, Proud to Be, and Against Agamemnon. She's received uh, fellowships to Brad Loaf Writers Conference, Vermont Studio Center, and Disquiet International Literary Program in Lisbon, Portugal. Uh, and you'll read some poems about Portugal. Too. Okay, good. Last year, she won uh, Repo Community College's Writer's Studio Award. She has an MA in Literature from Middlebury College's Breadloaf School of English and an MFA in Creative Writing from Colorado State University. Her poetry manuscript, Cartographer, is currently looking for a publisher. Right. Um, she's currently working on a second manuscript. These are, are our apparitions. At camp, she was the only camper that received the Mile Swim Award. She was 10, and a counselor had to get up at 7 a.m. and row a boat beside her as she swam the mile. She was quite a fish. (laughs) Kathleen Willard. Is there a publisher in the house? No? Okay. So... um, the, the um, American Academy of Poets does a poem of the poem of the day, and Walt Whitman's poem was the poem, and it was "Song of Myself 10." So I wrote "Song of Myself X." <laughs> this is a new poem. X for the red girl on fire always, and Y my flashpoints simmer centimeters below the earth crust. My head erupts in an alphabet on white pages fusing. Count, count, on, count on me casting off from the dock in my Zyback, secretly sailing to Istanbul on the way to Xanthus, an ancient, an ancient forgotten city, riding the stallions of Achilles, crossing over to the third new moon. As X is always unknowable, unknown, the elusive last place mathematicians chase, a jumble of numbers scribbled on text and and finally solved for. Or X, the signature, strong as a handshake. All my lover's memos end in XO, XO, XO. (laughs) Steadfast and unafraid of all infernos, my skin as tinder, an ember moved from city to the new frontier in a small tin box. How hollowed as I hoard the origins of all fires. My X chromosome remains a mysterious, a mysterious, I can't, I'm having a hard time reading, I'm sorry. A mysterious, I'm sorry, mirrors and a, a mysterious, I'm sorry, there I go again. My X chromosome mirrors a mysterious nature, imperial, impervious, and as of late, I am transfixed, transcribing my kingdom's codex. Finally, at the equation's endgame, no genius can solve for my X as they try to crucify me on this X axis. Meanwhile, hiding out in skyboxes and exile satiated by cybersex, I practice X-ray vision, stockpile Xanax, patience 
anticipation for the next hex, thriving on catastrophe and on the vast. You watch out for those X chromosomes. That's why some of us just have one, right? Uh, next up, uh, we have David, uh, David Daniels, who lit the whole thing on fire for us in the middle of our master class by having the manuscript he was working on win the Bread Loaf, I'm sorry, the uh, Four Way Books Intro Prize, right in the middle of things. And so we all just kind of lit on fire with that. So he's the author of two chapbooks, uh, Breakfast in the Suburbs and Indecency, which was the winner of the Robin Becker Chapbook Prize as well as the full-length collection, Clean, which, as I mentioned, won the Four-Way Books Intro Prize. He's received scholarships from the Breadloaf Writers Conference and the Stadler Center for Poetry at Bucknell University. His recent work appears in Kenyon Review, Indiana Review, Boston Review, Pleiades, and elsewhere. And he teaches at the University of Denver. And he had this to say, uh, I guess that I once gave up mustard for Lent as a child. <laughs> David Daniels. I did, I did, thank you. Uh, what lovely people back here, and Chris, thank you. Um, it's true, we met on the front porch on Thursday, and they reordered my manuscript, and I worked on it and sent it out at 3 a.m., and it won the next morning. So this was very nice. <laughs> Uh, this is a brand new poem from a new book I'm working on um, called Snapped, which is about uh, domestic violence and beauty. Uh, this is the first poem from it. The, the, the violence is domestic here. It's called The Rain. In a downpour in Venice, the rain said to me, Honey, what were you thinking? Those aren't umbrellas in the shopkeeper's window across from San Marcos Square. Come closer. And I did. And the rain was right. For there were six or so rabbits, skinned, strung tightly to wooden dowels. They dangled above the cheeses. The great light off the lagoon was gone that had done such trickery. And after the break-in, the rain said, I'm sure he was black, officer. And the cop said, I'm sure he was black, too. Though I never intended for these to be the rains of irony. All of the things my sister told the rain in secret. I'd been standing with a man insisting upon new forms of radical honesty when the rain said things to clarify, then said things to obscure. Once the rain picked me up in a bar and said things first to please himself, me only later. Ladies, am I right about this rain? Though I never intended for these to be the rains of hunger either. Well, them's the apples, kid. How does one survive such pleasure, I asked, and the rain crushed a beer can against his head. A priest and the rain walked into a bar. You can see where this is headed. The rain started off an elaborate joke that ended very serious. I'm leaving, she said, and you won't see the kids, but the rain got the upper hand. Thanks.
I think I want to read a. Um, I want to. I want to. I want to try to follow thematically in any way I can. Um, I got, so I've got. A, I've got a good start. I want to read a poem about um, reporting a crime to the um, authorities, because that's as close as um, as I have at the moment to following that. Um, and you'll see it's a very similar situation. This poem is titled, Amorous Elk in Underpants. (laughs) I was there. And it's important that you know the events as they truly transpired with the ripped dress and the oversized boxer shorts and the discarded rack of ant el- of elk antlers. A number of accounts are focusing on the antlers. Why were they discarded? Just what was the state of mind of the bull elk who was found bugling lewdly in a nearby clearing? But this is outside the point. You see, poor Mrs. Weatherwell tore her dress on the door, fleeing from my cabin, not in disgust, as has been my experience in the past, (laughs) but in shame. I had rejected her offer to have sex out in the open as the wild ungulates do. (laughs) Understand, I like Mrs. W. I'd be more than happy to mate with her in a field, to listen to her grateful ululations (laughs) echoing back at us from the surrounding mist-shrouded hills. But it was too damn cold. (laughs) She didn't wait to ask me why. She just turned and abruptly galloped out into the night and eventually into the ranger station, there to concoct that ridiculous story about the amorous elk in underpants. Thanks. I forgot to tell you all, Kathleen, that... I expect the collection that I'm going to read from first to be published this year or next. As I was telling Theresa the other day, there just aren't any publishers that know it yet. (laughs) So, (laughs) talking about offers, I'd like to share this poem called Not My Glass Slipper. Impale me on your picket fence. Strangle me with your platinum band. Pair me with your princess cut and shackle me to your sapiens. Exfoliate me, fictionate me, inculcate, irudiate me. Homogenize me, hydrolyze me, liposize, monogamize me. Ignore my ignominiation, adjudicate my abdication. Thank you. 
Okay. I don't know what to do. Um, let's see. Okay. Excuse me. I don't know what... I already told you that. Okay. Um, this one's called A Little Less Rapture. I'm... Um, I don't know how it connects to anybody else's, but <laughs> I, I feel like it does. Okay. A little less rapture. And all the moaning, oh, can't stuff it down, must air it out, and out is air to fire, a flooded gutter, a gutted flood you see each time, each time it rains. Have heard it so, even ears gasp for air. Let the day end, ride it out. You did as a kid, held your breath till they passed, kept hiding through seek. Not trees with runny nodes leaves, not plants with flopping necks, bent backs returning grace of summer's roiling day, not rolling sand, cornflower river, sedimentary path layered like fossils. No, sea roots emerge as wood, not ledges, not steps out of boulder piles, red dirt, mosquitoes. Hold it again, pretend to sleep as he fumbles and pants, dampens your neck. The piano's raining, you're collecting litter, paper and sails, just folded wings, drops plunk, will relent if you sleep. There's this great music in Portugal called Fado. Do you know Fado? Oh, okay. So all the men in Portugal got on ships and went to go to India. All the women stayed behind and sang songs to them, hoping they would come back. So it's beautiful music. Look it up on YouTube. You'll love it. So this is called um, Fado Tonight at the Table of Friars. And she begins to sing at the Mesa de Fradas. Candles illuminate altars of azulios, the blue annunciation and yellow unknown saints. And where do the songs originate? A young girl stands before the door, a beautiful man strums a guitaria, and she sings of lovers lost to the riches of India, and seizures inside erupts as lyrics of armadas crossing the equator burst into infernos, and ballads of mermaids flood the room with sorrow, sweet-talking lonely men into open and deadly waters. Her eyes closed, her body swaying, overcome by the grief of unknowing. She moans for men who follow trade routes, sketch in stars. Her music casts spells to harbor all sailors safely home. Her deep voice unleashes allure, and my desires, pinion and imprisoned, are no longer shipwrecked by suburbs and silly jobs. After hearing Fado tonight, I'd eagerly enlist on any ship and sail into any inferno and follow the dark-eyed guitarist around the Cape of Good Hope into the interior of my India, leading the landfall, assistant to cartographers, inking the blank spaces on my map.
Oh, this is a poem dedicated to a, a totally straight friend of mine who was picked up for beaten off in a park here in Denver. <laughs> it's called Public Indecency. It's not dedicated to him. It's just... <laughs> Relieved, to be frank, it was you, not me, caught on the nightly news. Forced to one knee in a parking lot, your unacknowledged kinks now fully on display. Though they smudged your face out kindly enough with pixels. Fingerprints, then off to one of their jail cells for the night. Your wife bailed you out. The town hushed, then whispered, whereas I, who was one among your innermost circle, dropped off a casserole. After our shock wore off, dimmed to concern, then to faint understanding, we, your inner circle, who were learning about you things we hadn't known, started in with small jokes, puns mostly, that smarted, you said, but also healed. Our usual mode of endearment to stay casual, lest the terror of it sting. We prodded for details, times of day, how you'd plotted it out sometimes in advance, (laughs) then fought against it. Other times with no forethought, surprising yourself in the act, often whipping it out for yourself with no one about to reclaim what part of the beast was in you, what little part. Thus released, sure no one had seen you, you'd saunter home through suburban dark, back the way you'd come. Glad, sure, to some degree, but all the more deeply hurt in the long run, the longer you reflected on it. What was the wild you were looking for that your wife and child, waiting at the table, seemed unable to give you? Not that you were unstable exactly, at least I didn't think so, and I say that, of course, as someone who has extracted brief pleasure from strangers and sometimes, too, in a park, the dangers outweighed by expectation or meager shot at joy. Joy, really now. I'm not sure that's the proper word. I've circled the park's perimeter at night, studied the dark's inhabitants, circling round the public monuments, the park a sort of republic for the homeless, mostly with one or two strays come in from the neighborhood. Men who, venturing out, feign a sudden interest in jogging, perhaps, with an almost imperceptible itch or remotest tug in the nylon crotch folds of their sweats and headed out, yes, I think, for joy. And one or two have joined me in the brush, hidden behind the gold facade of a stoic monument. Some dead, now deemed heroic, whose smile held firm, went suddenly Grim, the more the sculptor repositioned him. I want to say I'm so glad somebody brought this subject up. You probably. 
prompted me. You were. <laughs> I, too, have written on this subject. <laughs> However, I think you'll find that I'm, I'm taking a, a, a slightly more sedate um, approach. But uh, thank you. I do love that poem. I really do. That's such a great poem. Thank you. Um, this poem is titled The 9,000 Names of Onan. <laughs> Something so private, yet so epiphanic, rarely gets talked about, with its due dose of serious. Yet 90% of us pursue this delirious, with a reverence bordering on messianic. The mythical king of the land of self-love never gets much respect up in heaven. But on earth we refer to him several times daily, occasionally wearing a rabbit fur glove, when I'm flying solo, I fly with the top down, a wise friend once described over drinks. Crowd that it was, we nodded politely, considered our own time releasing our own hounds. The clinical terms are just that, too much, too clinical. And so we're devoted to self-chosen code words, ranging from livestock to fictional partners to clothing to items that sound ecumenical. I've heard self-abuse called the one true religion. I've heard it described as a walk to the swamp. For a brief time in Brooklyn, I dated a girl who called it upsetting the pigeon. A lovely term to me. A lovely term to me with its avian quicken. And something only a woman could say. Because for us men, the animal reference must be at least the full size of a chicken. A farm bird gets choked, a simian spanked, a flag gets saluted, an agent gets thanked. Someone drives to Nirvana in a little pink car while their next-door neighbor plays a one-string guitar. The master of his domain storms his own castle. The queen runs a monk in the patry. Someone's pet eel is taken out for a hassle. Someone oils their muckluck and raises the gantry. I'm in France. Speaking French is a common reply from a stewardess I call once a month. Not that I ask, but she's one of those people who, when she can't talk, will let you know why. We've tickled the Yangtze, we've climbed Mount Suribachi, we've jonied the baloney and hibachied the chachi. One-handed clapping sounds, some pleasant zen for the little monk, a thousand ways to teach the elephant to dance on the end of his trunk. And so on and on we march, happy pilgrims, on the road to dissolution, our gardens get tilled, and our toads get disgruntled, and our littlest generals embark on another revolution. Feel free to change this. Oh no. 
I'll just take a little detour. I'm so glad you two did that. <laughs> Pathology. He comes in to a pile of placentas. He doesn't mind placentas, he says. In fact, he rather prefers placentas. He handles each watery mass as the bloody matter of creation. He never uses gloves, he says, although he is told to. He says he wants to feel the cells dividing to touch their living liquid pulse. He slices, stains, and slides them under his lens. He says he is entrusted with the incunabula of life. He alone measures incoation. He says the syngenesis is his. He looks up to swinging doors. Oh, fuck, he says. Now they're bringing in the bladders. <laughs> thank you. I didn't say this already, but thank you to you guys. Um, I got so much clarity from my about my manuscript for from their feedback, even though I was pregnant, I was able to, um, I remember a lot of that, and I was able to do, it was great, I was able to take their advice and get the manuscript. You were like sober the whole time, that's I was yeah. sober. <laughs> I know. That's right. I was high on something else. That's right. Okay, so, um, all right, this one's called, You Be Inertia and I'll Be the Object in Motion. I'm sorry, I'll be an object in motion. I worked on that one word for a while. Um, Okay, Uh, this time I'm edging past in the garage, a stack of rusted license plates, hammer heads near handles never mended, on a groaning metal shelf of seed packets, gardening gloves, plastic butter tubs of screws, nails, wine corks rolled up like hay bales under a handmade wreath with faded Christmas ribbon. I've found when, why I'm here, why I came to find wren patterns in the sawdust and dangling threads of your chambray on the drill press I've forgotten. Pull the handle and watch the bit as large as my finger swivel into sheet metal, spit silver corkscrews. Unwind from the awl, tucked in the tool belt I lug around and unhook under cottonwood at the gully, my hair, hitch myself there, tickling moths and looping sap on my tongue. The hillside burns, language blazes from trains, but I, cross-hatching figures in the bark, cannot stop. This time, I'm drill bits with raffia to widen a patch, dishes with silk flowers, digging a garage out of clay, Piling all this fucking inertia. My sandwich is cold, but this scratching ink, I can't hear you, I can't hear anything. This dribbling razor, gurgle of spiders and hair in the drain. 
I should return hammered nail in its trunk to that tree and burn up the lost sign I posted and hope not tall grass, pine needle floor, and plastic bags pierced with cartons of cigarettes. It's only paper that burns. You're too young to be this old, you said, and too pretty to bitch so much. What's this I hear? Wire wings stain my back. I wait for your tutorials, your suggestions, your do-yourself-a-favors, but I'm ashamed of my filament arms, your flatbed truck, and all our clothes that smoke out your busted lungs, your torch larynx. for my daughter hummingbirds it is unlucky to capture hummingbirds to mistake them for fireflies condemning them to mason jars on the mantelpiece demanding their music at night you would sentence her thimble children to an eternity of loneliness the wind depends on a jump start from the from the hummingbirds wingless flight and it would remain confounded in the canyon, a thoroughbred locked at the starting gate. We have been warned of the possibility of the partial eclipse of the sun should her sparkling armor linger too long in the shadows. Old people propagate altars of delphiniums and count on the hummingbirds' brief visits to heal small fissures of their hearts. In a dream, Hummingbirds hitched themselves to my rings and flew, and flew to their wintering place, the center of the sun. One said, I will protect your daughter as she enters into the wilderness of life, delight her as the darkness presses in. And I believe her, for in an aspen grove, in a circle of columbine, hummingbirds found my daughter asleep in our tent. They came and told her their stories, their beaks clacking in the wind. And when my daughter runs ahead of us and seems eaten alive by the trees, by the cliffs, by the mountains, I catch sightings of hummingbirds orbiting her small head like fireflies. Uh, the casserole, a postscript. The casserole was an afterthought, but not crude, of veal soaked in vinegar and honey, then boiled, as my mother taught. And I brought it along, not for him, but as a gift for her, whom I didn't know well, but had come to accept as a private, sadly frumpy, dignified Woman upon whom the awful had happened. Like my mother, I pulled the meat off by hand, still steaming on the bone, and tossed this into a skillet of sweated shallots, ginger, and cream, then wine of an ordinary grape, all the while thinking how soon our attention would need to turn from her and from what we thought we understood of what she was grappling with. 
And she took the casserole from me, standing at the door that first night of her husband's release from jail, standing on floorboards I'd helped lay in the earliest days of their marriage. And the casserole, finished and studded throughout with leek and shaved water chestnuts, bore a sudden intimacy, restrained, yet capacious enough to say, I care right now in the immediacy, but my troubles, you see, are elsewhere. He's drunk, she said, out near the fire pit, and she ushered me through a side door into the yard where others, our inner circle, had already gathered around him. His voice, as he confessed everything, shifted from shame to moments of weirdly jocular bravado. And I felt, sitting down to join them, what my mother had often told me about the casserole's vacant weight. Thanks. Occasionally I bring food to neighbors as well. Which remind, which is what makes me think of this poem. Um, every 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 um, Christmas season, I make up a batch of eggnog and distribute it amongst neighbors, um, often with a seasonal poem. And this is one of the poems from from one of those events. Um, it's titled um, Six and a Half Ways of Looking at a Jar of Eggnog." After after W. Stevens. One. Among twenty snowed-in neighbors, the only one moving was the one without eggnog. (laughs) Two. I was of two minds. Which came first, the egg or the nog? Three. The eggnog world, not by blender, but with four. (laughs) A man and a woman drink one. A man and a woman and an eggnog arm wrestle. Five. Can't decide whether I like the beautiful whiskey burn like a rock song or the warm, eggy belch afterwards. (laughs) Six. Ice cream opened with a barbarous whisk, filled the bowl before we crossed it with eggnog, the impenetrable beige dairy tracked with booze. Seven. Oh, fat men of Highline... Why do you seek golden honey beer? Can you not still taste eggnog drunk from the homely earth shoes of your wives? Well, speaking of wives, (laughs) coming to terms. 
It's habit, honey, and those die hard. Not so difficult to understand. Darling, play another card. These words, my dear, are they unplanned? Good morning, babe. We sidle by. Littler said than if we'd not spoken. All we've got, this practiced lie, a tacit truce left best unbroken. We're less, my love, than strangers, true, politely sharing residence. Life with you is life in lieu, strictly love in the syllable sense. Our other sounds like brittle chrome. God forbid that we should touch. Don't know, hon, when I'll be home. Sweetie, I don't care that much. (laughs) Thank you, God. to take a darker turn here. <laughs> Surprising. This one's called Let Us Just Let Us Just Wrestle or Woo. I am a stubble yard rubbed bare by ringing. You are a push mower, a plastic bag, and hell, you can be the dried blood and bone meal as well. Or be the rake. I strike match and suck wool in air. Then you appear, cup your hands to catch the ash, and you aren't mad and haven't been crying. Is that why you're here, big hands picking up after me? How can my trash rest so clean in your palm? Where's your pride, the lesson? What happened to your checklist, your point? That dark flood in your eyes again? Am I a plan to be happy, or are you waiting for a drought to save you? I'm breaking the rules. Okay, so I I have been writing pastorals. I've been writing, there's a series of ten, so I'm not going to read all ten, thank God. And then what happened after I wrote pastorals was I decided I needed to write anti-pastorals. I, true, and so there's like five of those. So what I want to do is write is read one pastoral and then one anti-pastoral, so you can see the, the the dialogue. So this is the first one, pastoral number one. However, our shadows, however, the mountains spit out scaffolds of an abandoned mine, still rich with silver, near the ruined city. The saloons graced by oil paintings of corpulent nudes denote a slow decay. Here, minerals shift in the mountain's interior, and the slender river glides through a sleeve of granite. We look at each other as if it were the first time, unveiling ourselves in this ancient stand of aspens, gleaming gold in the late intaglio of the afternoon sun. Newlyweds, despite decades, and breathe beautifully into each other's ears. A horse whinnies somewhere in the valley. Somewhere, the granite outcropping begs for its first spit of snow. Mm 
something. So. Fracking. Very anti-pastoral. <laughs> so I've done benzene oil spills, Leadvale Superfund sites, Eurovan, Colorado. And it's really hard to write um, lyrically about fracking. These are our apparitions. The sky gleams towards gray. The mouths of the caves fill with quartz call. How long before we are all fluent in earth? Our scarring stops. In an office, an engineer imagines molecules, deep past aquifers, speak combustion and churn engines, and blast sand and benzene near the Earth's core, unloosens eons of errant natural gas, dom- sorry, um, dormant beneath Pawnee grasslands, an oily ocean the size of Saudi Arabia, still and docile waits. Underneath the fossil beds of mastodons and eohippus, the knee-high horses first to run wild in the prairie, underneath everyone's water source, underneath artifacts and evidence of prehistoric campsites of fossil man, the paleo-Indian inhabitants of 12,000 years ago, underneath the final outpost of the Colorado butterfly plant imperiled globally, an ocean awaits to be split open with mobile steel girders slamming concrete sleeves and fallible into the deepest recesses of rock to pipe toxic concoctions by roustabouts overworked. And now the acrid aluminum air irritates and fire streams from water faucets in the nearby suburbs. The bonds of our cells unhinge unleashing old and new contagions and cover-ups, the whole procedure deemed safe. While around the clock, earth cracks open, we tinker with tectonic plates. This one's uh, shorter than what I've been reading. Uh, so at the center of my book, Clean, that's coming out, are uh, elegies to about six or seven people I buried in the 90s, the last of whom, before I moved to Colorado, this is dedicated to. He just asked me to keep him knocked out as long as he possibly could be. Um, so I sat in his house and read Heart of Darkness quite a bit Well, after uh, he passed out. This is called Last Week You Took the Barium. Last week, they lit your insides up by sci-fi periscope. And your insides up on the doctor's screen blazed like a colonist's map of the Congo. Wherever the empire had set up shop, all down the rich green river stink, were now fully functioning trading posts of pink. Or outposts of rot, Inverted pink that couldn't be got at easily by knife nor chemo shrink. Tonight you are passed out cold on the couch, valerian cut into dope. 
We're old acquaintances. I'm keeping watch. Take my leave for a smoke on your iced balcony. We've been through this before. First, Curtis, one blasted summer going fast. Then Farmer, who lasted longer. I've somehow managed to wind up clean. Breathed dead hippo meat, so to speak, and not be contaminated. That last bit lifted directly from Joseph Conrad. Thanks. So, uh, listen, we're going to do one more round with our poets. Uh, and before we do, uh, I wanted to thank everybody for coming, for your uh, attention, and I uh, hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, please, as each person finishes reading, give them a good round of applause. Okay. I'd like to finish with a love poem. This is titled, uh, My My Blind Date with the Wolf Woman. (laughs) (laughs) This room, this glass, this bed, this wine, this song of lives lived well and rested, That look that passed between us when I discovered you were (laughs) hairy-chested. The air was thick with lupine lust, a wave that quickly crested. Dense fur sprang from your hands and bust and from the snout that manifested. Full moon through dusty keyhole white Across rare stakes as we had requested And how you fanged them with delight While I stood back as you'd suggested I've thought of you only since that sharp night in bed Your lovemaking nip left me single-breasted. A lunar month later, this scar throbs my chest and the thrill of it gives me, thrill that it gives me still fills me with dread now that the taste of my flesh has been tested. Thank you. Although this poem is called To Stand Naked One Time, it has nothing to do with what J.D. was just talking about. (laughs) This is a poem actually from my new collection, and I will let it speak for itself. To Stand Naked One Time. The heart does not beat. It rings itself out 100,803 times a day. Son and father... Father and brother, 
The trajectory of blood is like a wave that sweeps and beats on grasses and trees, fields, in footsteps filled with blue, gray uniforms. Footsteps so even they are uniform as each person stamps and marches out, following one another in the fields to beating drums, and yet how many times? How many times to surge, wave upon wave, son against the father's blood, or brother against the son, father against the brother, to peer through haze of blood for uniforms of gray or blue or patchwork, for the waving flags, the flap to signal charging out, today, tomorrow, yesterday, and time and again, again to take the fields, to fight for north, for south, to take the fields for desperate generals and bloody brothers, till night falls and the bugles blare the time to sound retreat. Fading feet, uniforms, drift away to wait the darkness out, to fear a fitful sleep that comes in waves of blood and boots, of someone standing, waving, till a musket ball finds him in the field. Where you find him, face down, and roll him out, and just like that, you see he is your brother. You rip, you tear away your uniform, and you stand naked before all one time. To take no side, to stand for all one time. To stand in Gettysburg when one flag waves, and all men wear the same one uniform, bloodied to the color of the fields. The son and father, the father and brother, stand together, their hearts ringing out. 300,000 times, three days in the fields. Blood is waved from father, son to brother. There is no unity. Hearts are wrung out. This um, last poem, I've been um, thinking about Jake Adam York a lot lately, and he passed away in <laughs> December. <you know. laughs> and um, I think I'm going to read this one in honor of Jake, because I learned how to write elegies from Jake, and I was reading some Lorca at the time that I wrote this, and it just seems appropriate for tonight. But I don't know where it is. Hold on a second. <laughs> there it is. It picks up a little bit on Andrea's bit there as well. Uh, Perhaps death, one poem in a train. Mm -hmm. Train through a loom, train through night. My bold company outside tumbleweed or my dusty window in perpendicular language. Is it a train's death or my bellow when the thin doors open? My limp doubt when your arms propelled in wind? 
You took me to a meadowed ranch, ochred in hay, the memory of a wormwood barn, and jarred in honey, I hardened myself near long, thin shadows. Excuse me. Tomorrow's cold stacks basalt and slate in parallel paths away from the barn. My fingers on silent photos leave depressions on us, and together our splintered smiles spit out wormholes, limb joins, the property line gambled away with a fraudulent promissory note. That has nothing to do with Jake, by the way. That's about my dad. Okay. Here, wind, thundering hand, you bend and tie me in the combine. Here, rusted tractor of your childhood, fade of sunlight and overexposed horizon, you spit out hinged wings and railroad ties, my childhood and bent photographs spilled from the conductor's car, flickered in moonlight. Perhaps my death, then, one poem in a train, familiar worm at the roof of my mouth, you smile for me, long or sideways, Trained through restlessness, trained through solitude. Perhaps, perhaps I invent you. Trained through a loom, trained through night. Let me imagine this moment as it is, not perhaps. My death a thin door. Don't cut away sepia, bent corners, worn horizon of autumn and spring. Leave me in this photograph, my shoulder tucked under your arm. Train, rail, my poem in a car. I've tied myself to your tracks. Mm-hmm. From someone who's suffered from post MFA depression. <laughs> This was a really great class. I had a thesis but not a manuscript. Now I have a manuscript. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. This, it's, it's a great class. Um, highly recommended. Take it, take it. So one, one thing I found out was I had a lot of place-based poems. And I thought about that a lot. And then I realized I was a displaced person. I'm a military brat. So I have no home. I don't know anyone from first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade. No favorite teacher. No one. Zero zip. So I'm displaced. So I write about place a lot. That was a good thing to know. That helped shape my manuscript. So I would like to read this last poem to my mom and dad. And what I have is their letters that they wrote. My dad went to Vietnam in 1963. And in 1979, I have all the letters. I've never read them. And this is from 1963. So this is be a badgety, them writing to each other. This is, this, is an, this is a poem that was anthologized. Their letters. He wrote to her from an obscure country in Asia. She wrote back of my frilly dress for Easter, of traveling up the Mekon and Sandpans, advisor to armies, and of sorrow and assassination, the empty saddle on the black horse, the entourage. The blue envelopes from APO San Francisco bringing assurances. She waited in Georgia drinking cocktails. That he was recently alive and thinking of their children. Among military wives, marking time with rounds of bridge and other diversions. He tells of his first night in Saigon. The bomb exploding in the fuel depot, the fire. And sometimes she described... Pillbox hats, the white gloves, 
flooding his quarters an instant inferno. She wore to mass, R.R. eating okra and peach pie at Morrison's cafeteria. Someone shouting run, the city charring, while she watches their children practicing backstroke. He runs nude in the dark streets, seconds in front of the flames. And can her daughter and two sons take horseback riding lessons? Could they afford it? Yes. Purchase the Jotfers. Thank you for Dad's Brad book, mentioning geography she cannot imagine. He marches deeper into the jungle, up the Mekong, training citizens to be soldiers, jots down troop movements in a small notepad, and she waits much too long for his next letter. Dearest Jim, this week I took the children to the Chattahoochee County Fair. We walked the midway in the evening eating cotton candy. Your daughter, much too eager to see the freaks on display inside the canvas tents. This week, there are cakewalks at Halloween parties. This week, our children dressed in riding clothes, cantering and clinging to their ponies. This week, a school bomb drill and math homework. This he is reading while he salts leeches that cling to his calves, killing them, and dries his boots soaked by swamp water. This he is reading before sleep, as monsoons begin its weeping, the frog's croaking amplifies. This he is reading as he puts on his flak jacket, blackens his face. This he is reading after he cleans his rifle, visits the priest, posts another letter. Love to you and the children, Jim. There is a funny one in here that's totally... totally, Thank God, dude. Relax. If my grandmother were alive, she would have watched the news this week and just said, figures, because... But she she was racist, but she's safely dead, so I can read this. Julia... It's a sonnet. It's sincere. Julia. My grandmother's unpronounceable maiden name meant shit on a stick in the Flemish tongue. (laughs) Shit from lower Flanders, from where she had suitcased an unpronounceable longing all the way to Indiana. Mishawaka, to be exact, which translates as nothing at all in the tribal tongue from which it was stolen. She hammered out brake pads and wore the boots at Bendix Aviation. Hammered out brake pads with dagos, she said. Dagos, then blacks for 40 years. And she came at us with her foreign curses. And she came at us with her fourth Manhattan. She'd left a fishmonger somewhere for this, she used to say. And I would watch her slap on sinister powders. Like America, she was getting ready, and there was nothing I could do. 
don't think I got a chance to speak for all of us and acknowledge Chris Rancic. Yeah. Mike Henry and Lighthouse. And the 15 or so of the 73 people that I invited. Thank you. <laughs> Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.